The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. This is Joe Schwab from Mass General in Boston. Andrew Schoenfeld, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston, Massachusetts. We're going to be speaking about epidural abscesses. And I, I think that one of the things that we, we uh, um, often hear about epidural abscess is that it's an emergency. It's a devastating problem. Um, and, and I think some of the things that we, were, uh, we used to be taught about epidural abscesses may actually be true, but some of them are not. One of the things that's interesting to me is, is the, the number of abscesses that I feel like I'm seeing in my practice. I feel like I'm seeing more than I used to. Do you think there's any validity to that? Yes, I think so. Um, I think there's a number of factors that are contributing to that. One, of course, uh, is the opioid crisis and the increase in use of injectable uh, drugs, such as heroin, um, fentanyl, um, because that IV drug use is probably one of the single largest risk factors for epidural abscess in patients who are under the age of 65. Um, so certainly in urban areas or in states and uh, localities where um, the use of uh, injectables is approaching endemic, we are definitely seeing an increase. And then I think there's also a bimodal distribution where we're seeing it increasingly uh, as patients are um, advancing in age um, with the baby boomer generation, a large demographic now entering the age where for um, other factors, diabetes, uh, other health concerns, they are also at risk for developing epidural abscess. So those two combined, kind of a perfect storm for. I think that, that um, one of the things that, that, we, that everyone fears is a catastrophic neurologic problem with epidural abscess. And several of the, the foundation papers uh, regarding epidural abscess really emphasize that point. Um, one of the issues, though, about those papers is that they, they didn't have access to axial imaging, didn't have CT scan or MRI. And so really they were, were waiting for a patient to present with a catastrophic problem. And, and then it was indeed a catastrophic problem. So probably were diagnosing it earlier, um, and, but yet, uh, so a patient may not have a neurologic deficit, they have an abscess, but the mentality has often been you have to operate uh, urgently on that problem. Um, what do you think about that, Andrew? What, what are your thoughts on whether or not you must operate on a patient, and what, what do you take into account when you're thinking about this? Yes, I think philosophically, uh, in orthopedics, as we become more savvy with understanding levels of evidence and appreciating uh, how various factors can contribute to the dynamic of conditions that we have accepted as sort of dogmatic. And there's a lot of dogma still in orthopedics and probably neurosurgery and certainly around spine surgery where we just accept as sort of written law things that were postulated in an age before advanced imaging. So certainly with the sensitivity of MRI and the proclivity to use it, we are picking up epidural abscesses that are much smaller uh, and uh, not necessarily involving the neural elements, but just happen to be there sort of incidentally, if you will. And you know, just because it's something, an entity called epidural abscess doesn't mean that it's the same kind of epidural abscess that the initial literature was developed around before they had those kinds of testing. So I would say that it really is on a case-by-case -case basis, and certainly from a literature standpoint, Point, there is literature to support use of non-operative treatment, successful use of non-operative treatment in select situations. Um, and I think that, you know, by and large,
large, there's, there's a good body of literature that's developing, including work that you've done at MGH or that has been done at the Brigham previously, um, around what factors could help inform those decisions. I, I agree totally, and, and I think the, the, um, clearly one of the important factors on whether or not you should operate or not uh, are neurologic deficits. So if a patient presents with a neurologic deficit, that tends to predict that, that they're not going to respond well to a non-surgical non approach. But if someone doesn't have a neurologic deficit, you, you may have some, some leeway. Um, so in that patient population uh, who has no neurologic deficit but does have an abscess, what, what, what factors do you take into account when you're making your decision? I think also the things that would inform decision in that regard are just the general sense of the patient um, and how at risk are they for deterioration. Because it isn't just about neurologic deficit, there's also that they could become septic yep. and have um, catastrophic issues develop that way that are life-threatening, of course. Um, so if they, you know, based on age, diabetes, serum albumin, um, possibly, you know, some of the emerging li literature around inflammatory markers, if they have an elevated platelet lymphocyte ratio or uh, elevated neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, um, these factors should also be taken into account when deciding on what's the best course of action. At the end of the day, surgery is not a benign intervention either. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you can eradicate the abscess, but then the patient succumbs to complications from the surgical intervention, they're, they're not enjoying the benefit of having the procedure, of course. I totally agree. I think one of the other things that, that uh, perhaps is less well appreciated <clears throat> is the, the mortality associated with an epidural abscess. I think the, the, um, many of these patients die. And, and um, you know, I think that, that uh, in some cases that's less well appreciated. So, for instance, maybe from sepsis or maybe even from their treatment. But they're, they're, they are really teetering on the edge once they develop this abscess. The abscess is just a, uh, the canary in the coal mine for their health. No doubt, no, no question. Uh, and in both those bimodal distributions, individuals who are of an advanced age and don't have other risk factors but have developed an epidural abscess, as well as individuals who are you know, abusing injectables or have other uh, risk factors that may develop abscess at an earlier age, it's, it's kind of a sentinel event. And um, there's good literature more because Epidural abscess is increasing in incidence and prevalence, of course, but um, it's not at the point where you're able to do like population-wide studies. But if you use just sepsis as a corollary and look at the long arc of patients' lives after they're surviving sepsis, there are significant hit to the physiologic system that does portend mortality on a five-year time frame. You know, akin to like patients who develop hip fractures or odontoid fractures. These are hallmarks for just a general physiologic state that may have uh, implications for survival, even in the near term, even if they do successfully recover from the treatment or the per immediate perioperative period or the 90-day global period. And I think that's important for practitioners to discuss with patients and families when they're kind of giving them the lay of the land about what to expect going forward once an individual has developed epidural abscess. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Well, that concludes our session on epidural abscess. Thank you.